Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the Jeff Reinbold Show. We are extremely pleased today to have a guy that uh, is one of the unique guys in coaching, in the coaching business. He's got a unique story. We're going to unpack his story. Uh, he's been known as a quarterback whisperer, an offensive genius. Now, I don't throw that term around and don't use it very much for football guys, but if there is one, a football genius, the guy we're going to talk to today is that guy, and his name is Mark Tressman. Mark has been a longtime NFL assistant and NFL head coach. He's won great cups in Canada. We're going to unpack all that here in a second, but I'd like to welcome Mark to the show. Jeff, it's great to be with you. It's good to see you again. I'm glad you're you're back uh, coaching and uh, with a great group in Hamilton, and it's nice to catch up. Thanks for having me. Well, let's get right on to it, Mark. I, I want to, your story is so amazing, right? And there's so many things about your story that, that make it even almost Hollywood wouldn't write that. It was, it's that, it's that crazy, but you're a kid that's born and raised in St. Paul, Minnesota, right? And you Minneapolis, go, Minneapolis, you go to the, you go <laughs> to the hometown university of Minnesota and you go as a quarterback and there's another quarterback on campus by the name of Tony Dungy and Tom Moore, the legendary Tom Moore, who I, is Tom still coaching because last time I watched Tampa Bay, he was on the sideline. How old is he's Tom? There. He's going to be there again uh, uh, this, this next year. He's probably 85 years old. And, you know, I was really lucky, uh, you know, growing up, in growing up in Minnesota, Tom recruited me. You know, he was probably 35 at the time, maybe 40 at the most. And, uh, you know, I was really lucky to, you know, be able to spend some time with Tony, be in the same meeting room with him and uh, travel with him on the road and, and those types of things. And, and we certainly stayed in touch and, you know, proud of his career, obviously. Okay. Now you are a offensive coach, right? You played the position of quarterback, but yet you get an opportunity to go as a free agent to the hometown Minnesota Vikings as a free safety. Now that one I'm having a little bit of trouble with, right? Like, well, you know, it's it, it's a it's a great question, and if I can just digress for a second, because uh, Bud Grant, um, the legendary CFL and NFL Hall of Famer, both both leagues, um, you know, grew up in Minneapolis. We had we had Viking season tickets. They were they were fifteen dollars a game at the time, and we sat right behind the first base dugout. My dad and I it was my dad's only day off. He worked you know six days, and that was a big deal going to the Viking game and and watching Bud Grant, the legendary coach, come out the Purple People Eaters, the whole deal. Then I get to high school and I'm playing the same conference as Bud's son, Mike, who's a legendary high school coach in Minnesota. He's probably have six or seven state championships on his own. Um, and then uh, Bud sees me at the University of Miami coaching and he comes out of retirement. And uh, but prior to that, um, he he brought me in to be a defensive back because I had lost uh, um, my arm was destroyed for a lot of different reasons. So he brought me in as a defensive back two years. Uh, I was in law school for two years. He brought me back both times. So I had a chance to watch him as a, you know, as a fan play against his son. And the thing about playing against his son is he was at all the games. So I would look up and see my idol Bud Grant up there while I was playing basketball and football against Mike Grant. Then he brings me on to the, uh, then he brings me in for training camp twice. And, uh, and then finally, uh, offers me a job to, to coach on his staff. So for the first 30 years of my life, 28 to 30 years, Bud Grant was an incredible part of it. And I think being on the defensive side for two years in training camp, 
really helped me as an offensive coach throughout my career. You know, we're going to get into the number of guys that you've associated with really, really high level, some of the greatest coaches that have ever coached during your time. You mentioned Bud, um, but I want to go back a little bit because I want people to I want people to hear this story. And I'm I'm going to push Mark's book at the end of this, because once you listen to this podcast, you're going to want to learn more about this. But the second training camp, you get cut. And now take me back through it because I don't want to screw up the story. You have got your car packed to go to Minnesota the first time you got cut. I mean, to go to Miami the first time you got cut. Yeah. Yep. And then he, he brought me back again the second time. Okay. Now you get cut again and you decide it's time to go on now. Promised your mom you'd, you'd go to law school. And so you, you drive from Minneapolis all the way to Miami. You get to Miami. And the story, as I remember it, coach, is you are a law student and there is a you live in an apartment building and, and there's a guy out barbecuing one day about your age and you go out there and you guys strike up a conversation and it's none other than Mike Archer who would become the head coach at LSU a phenomenal defensive coach and coach in the National Football League and you guys start talking a little football and the next thing you know you're a volunteer assistant at Miami for the legendary Howard Schnellenberger true that that's true. It was, I mean, I believe as uh, Paulo Coelho says in his book, there's really no such thing as a coincidence. And if I wouldn't have gone out to cook chicken, barbecue chicken at five o'clock in the afternoon after studying for exams, we wouldn't be talking here today, Jeff, and we wouldn't have had so much fun together when we got to coach together. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, that's how it happened. And um, I wound up, you know, coaching as a volunteer and then you know, like a lot of coaches, I decided I, I kind of wanted a coach. That time there were no computers. So I, I wrote out 100 handwritten letters uh, to, uh, to coaches all over the country to try to get an interview. Got, didn't get an interview. And oddly enough, the, uh, the NCAA changed the rule from eight full-time, four part-time, and a volunteer to nine full-time. And Earl Morrill, who was the quarterback coach, the great Earl Morrill, back up to Bob Greasy, Don Shula, that whole there's probably nobody in the audience who remembers this. You and me, we're the only. Okay, that's it. So they're they're probably going to shut us down here in a second. But uh, yeah, Earl was uh, uh, and and Bud had promised me. He said, "Mark, if a position opens up, I'll hire you." And he he backed us his promise by hiring me. And um, we, we brought in Vinny Testaverde and Bernie Kosar that year. And I wound up spending a lot of time with them. And and uh, the next year, while Jim Kelly was finishing up. The next year, uh, you know, we win the national championship. Bud's watching the game. I coach another year with Jimmy Johnson. And uh, Bud comes out of retirement after a Viking 1-15 season, and he offered me a job. All right. Now, you have three quarterbacks in the quarterback room. Jim Kelly, Bernie Kozar, and Vinny Testaverde. Yeah, there was – well, there, there really it was Mark Richt – and Kelly were there when I was a volunteer coached by Earl Morrill. But during the season, while they were having their meetings, I had written this long kind of dossier to, to Howard saying, I should be spending time with this, these guys, because they're not going to play anyways. And he let me do it. And uh, so, so I had Vinny and Bernie to myself during the week uh, while the, the rest of the team was in meetings and doing other things. Okay, so now I heard that story as 
you had written that dossier, as you call it, to Howard, and that those were two kind of coveted kids, young kids. And so when you got, when Miami would go on the road to play, Howard wanted you to work them out and just look after them and, and spend time with them so they didn't get homesick and transfer and all of that stuff. And that, that has, that turned into an association, which as we go through your career, will come back a number of times. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's okay. Right. So now you go and coach running backs for Bud. Now, again, I know these stories, but I want you to recount them because I think they're so classic. There was another young defensive guy on that staff by the name of Pete Carroll. You got it. Seahawks yeah. head coach Pete Carroll. Yeah. Was, what was Pete like? Like is, he's he's really the he he's pretty much the same guy then as he is now. You know, he really hasn't, you know, psychologically aged at all, obviously. And uh, you know, he's done a great job. So we had that, yeah, it was both Bud wanted some young coaches on the staff and he hired Pete and I. And uh, you know, coincidentally, you know, Pete stayed. I left to go to Tampa to coach Vinny because Vinny was going to be the number one draft choice. Tampa decides to cut Steve Young and send him to San Francisco. That'll come back around again. That'll come back around as well. But uh, uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, and and the the thing about it is Jerry Burns, as nobody will remember his name, was one of the great offensive coordinators in the history of the game, literally. He was Bud's coordinator for all 25 years, basically, of his time in Minnesota. And when I got to spend time with Bill Walsh, he would tell me that Jerry Burns was really, you know, the you know, set the stage for what is called the West Coast offense. And I, when I went to San Francisco, I, I felt that because it was very easy for me to acclimate because of my time with Jerry Burns. All right. Now, complicated. <laughs> talk about the genius of Bud Grant, because for you younger NFL fans, this is a guy that whose teams historically would always go to training camp last. He had, as I understand it, now you can tell me if this is a true story or not, he had a deer feeding station outside of, he's a big outdoors guy, and That's would true. Feed, feed the deer every day. And he would walk in my office and say, come on over for a minute, I want you to see something, and the deer would be right out, right out back, right out his window. Um, yeah, that was, that's a true story. What was it about him that made him so unique and special, Mark? Well, you know, Bud went home for dinner every night. And then he'd come back and do his work and he'd always stop by my office and we chat. He'd always try to, you know, he, you know, coaches like to eat fast because they got to get back and watch the tape and Bud would, we'd sit at this table. There's so many stories, you know, we could go on, we could do a Bud Grant, you know, six part series, but he just had life in order. I think that's the best way to describe it. He had football was important. He was a highly competitive guy, uh, very practical a master of observation, I think, was his greatest quality. Uh, uh, a macro delegator never, never got in the way of his coordinators. He's always he's coming and say, you know, I don't, I can't speak the language, but I know enough of it to understand it. And his his greatest quality was, I, I think, you know, he was known as very stoic, and he was on the sideline, but he managed the game. You know, I I feel very lucky because there were, weren't weren't very many coaches who got a chance to be on the headsets with Bud Grant during the course of a game, and he managed the game beautifully. He knew what was going on. He could he could find weaknesses in what teams were doing, um, but but his greatest asset was family, 
you know, nature and, and the game. Yeah. Now, I don't know if you caught this, Tress, but the Vikings played in an outdoor playoff game not very many years ago. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably within five. I think it's when they were playing at the old university stadium uh, outside. And it's Seattle, and it's it's got to be 15 degrees below zero. And Bud comes out to do the coin toss in bare arms. He had, he had a short sleeve shirt on. Now, that's pretty tough. He must have been 75 years old at that time or 80. Probably older. I mean, he, he you know, he just died a few months ago and he was 95. So, um, and he was up to that time, up till weeks before he was still taking his, you know, fishing trips and hunting trips and doing all that with people. And he was really a regular guy, tremendous family, gigantic family, great grand, you know, he's a great grandfather, grandfather, but talk about living your life completely. Um, he did it at every level. Amazing man. All right. Now you go from that environment, you know, where your dad can watch you. And I know you you and your father were very, very close. Tampa Bay, you're going to get Vinny. Was that Ray Perkins at that time? Ray Perkins. Okay. Now when you got Vinny after he'd come off of that great career at the university of Miami, talk about his transition into NFL football. Yeah, I mean, the part you really, you kind of missed was at Minnesota, um, Minnesota got the first pick in the draft. I didn't I got, this, is, this is 1985. It's kind of a, a cool miss. Um, so I get up there and Bud walks in my office in the spring and says, uh, um, you know, we're going to either draft Bernie or or Eddie Brown, who was our All-American wide receiver. Mm-hmm. And, uh and I said, you got to go. I mean, Bernie's the guy. He said, uh, that's what we think, too. Go pack a, a suitcase. We're getting on this guy's private jet, and we're going to fly and pick up the Cosars, and we're going to go down to Miami, and we're going to meet with the Cosar family and their agent. So we get on the plane. We pick up the Cosar family. We go down there, and we were going to draft Bernie. And what happened was... Ernie Corsi, the general, former general manager of the Browns, had found a loophole in the draft process, and Bernie was going to decided that he got pushed really into staying home in Cleveland by his family, and so uh, in in eighty five he wound up going to Cleveland. In eighty six I wound up leaving and going down uh, to uh, to uh, Tampa. But we had Steve DeBerg at the time, so we weren't going to rush Finney. The, the issue was, what were, what were they going to do with Steve Young? Because Steve Young was there. And, uh, you know, I had no, other than, you know, meeting Steve Young, that was about it, because it was offseason. He wound up going there, and we drafted Vinny in April, and Steve played the first year. And then I left because I got offered a job in Cleveland to coach Bernie <laughs> Kosar. Wow. I tell you what, you got it. What it was, that's amazing. Now, you go and Bernie Kosar, not the, not the, I would say, prettiest quarterback in terms of little funky arm action and not a, you know, not a great looking athlete, but he just had an incredible ability to move a football team. Yeah, he was a tremendous player and and one of the greatest leaders I've ever been around on the field. Tremendous leader of men. I think of all the qualities that he had, other than throwing a great deep ball and 
it factor, you know, he's, it, I think people in the audience will remember, you know, Philip Rivers, he was, Philip Rivers was really kind of the second coming of Bernie Kosar, very similar players. All right. Now from Cleveland, as after you go, you're an offensive coordinator and quarterback coach, then you go back to the Vikings. Yep. Now was Tommy Kramer with you in at the Vikings at that Tommy time? Tommy Kramer was the first years I was there. And then um, uh, we drafted Rich Gannon. I'll be. I yeah. didn't see there again is another one I didn't know. I knew you worked with Rich in, in Oakland, but I did not know that you had him in Minnesota. I spent his first year in the league with him as the quarterback coach there. And Tom Moore at the time was the, the coordinator. All right. Then you go to, I, I would say, offensive coordinator master's or doctorate degree program in San Francisco under the, under the late, great Bill Walsh. Talk about what that experience was like, Coach. Well, it was, you know, I just... I had been out of football for three years. I got out after Cleveland and decided what we we're going to raise a family. And that was it for football. And then to make a very, very long story short, I get a, I'm at my desk, you know, trading bonds and I get a call. My secretary comes in and says, you got a call from George Seifert. I go, right. Well, this was two days after the Super Bowl, which my wife and I went to where San Diego was destroyed by Steve mm -hmm. Young and Jerry Rice. And walking out of the stadium, my wife says, too bad you never had a chance to coach Jerry Rice and Steve Young. And two days later, Mike Shanahan became the head coach of the Broncos. And uh, and I get a call from George Seifert. And, and really, as soon as I got on the plane, I knew I was going to get the job. Um, how I, did you know? How, how, did, how did you do the premonition? Yeah, it was just where my heart was. I every When I came in there, I met, you know, Bob McKittrick was the line coach. They, I met George. They put me in with Bob. I spent an hour with Bob watching tape and he just said, Mark, this is a no brainer. You know, we're going to hire you to be the coordinator. Um, but really, you know, if what I really want you to know, I think that's more important than the chronology is my coaching career had two different sides. One was the transactional side and one was the transformational side. So all these stories that I'm telling the listener is really a product of selfishness, self-indulgence, ego, title, money. And I got to coach in the Super Bowl. And when I was out there, I go, so what? You know, it's not that big a deal because I wasn't coaching for the people that I was working with. I was coaching for myself. So I went from, and you got to experience really the other side of it, Jeff, yep. which was the transformational side. Now, there was weakness, there was vulnerabilities, there was a lack of self-awareness at times, there was ego, you know, blind spots in leadership, but my heart was in an inspirational side of, you know, wanting to serve the coaches and serve the players, not worrying about myself, not worried about how much money I was going to make or the titles that I had or whether we even won. I just wanted to create an environment where everybody could become the best version of themselves. So, you know, I just, I didn't want this 30 minutes to go because the chronology is really the same. It's about a coach who drifted in the wind, got a lot of experiences, you know, had a lot of different opportunities to coach, grew his football, grew his science, but at the end of the day was at 50 years old was completely unfulfilled. And because of the bleeding uh, and getting fired at NC state in 2005, you know, I was able to spend some time and pause my career 
and stop the bleeding and have the opportunity to go back and find out as much perceptual success that I was having and the money I was making and the peer group, you know, the guy's a quarterback this, or he's really smart or whatever, there was no fulfillment in it. And I completely pivoted after this time of pause and reflection to go the only way to really be fulfilled in coaching is to completely give of yourself to others and never ask for anything in return. And once I did that, my whole life changed dramatically. And whether I was coaching in Canada or Baltimore, Chicago, it really didn't matter. Because prior to 50, the scoreboard mattered and first downs mattered and red zone mattered. And after 50, that was just insignificant part of the process. It was, what could I do today to help this coach or this player get better and influence him and inspire him to become the best version of himself and create a value system around it that would keep me on the rails values of respect, values of humility, values of joy, values of trust, and values of love to truly love the people that I was working with and give them my heart. And that changed everything. So I'm happy to go back to the chronology, but it's really just a, bun a, a guy drifting. The, the, the chronology is a guy drifted in the wind in the coaching profession without mentorship, without guidance, uh, without support, other than wife and his family, you know, who always took a priority, but never thought of anybody but himself when it came to his profession and realized you can never be fulfilled unless you use your profession or your platform for the purpose of serving others. That's really it. Mark, you gave me the perfect segue to what I wanted to talk about. And, and I'm one of the biggest things, because coaching really, I think for a lot of us, uh, especially as you get older, I think you, you you mature and you start to understand a little bit. It's really just the vehicle for the opportunity to help others, to help enhance uh, another's life, whether that's a player, another coach, whoever. I, but what was it? And was there a epiphany that happened or any, what was it that brought yeah. you to that point? Well, like I said, is this happens to people all the time, and and really it takes a devastating moment in most cases. It takes something that just stops you in your tracks. For some people, it might be a death. For me, it was getting fired in North Carolina State, thinking that's where I was going to finish raising my daughters in junior high and high school. I promised them we weren't going to leave Raleigh. And two years into a four-year contract, the staff, the head coach and staff gets fired. And so, um, you know, you've got you've to stop the bleeding, so to speak. And so I think this is when people find their true purpose a lot of times is when, you know, there's some kind of moment that just stops them in their tracks. And that's what happened to me. And I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure it happens to a lot of people. Yeah, I think I agree with you. Um, that's one of those watershed moments. Um, when did you know, and this is an interesting thing because I asked Coach Vermeil the same question because he had that watershed moment when he had his nervous breakdown. When did you know it was safe to go back in the water, that you could go back into coaching without becoming that guy again? Well, I was excited because once I went back and so this is something I do at the law school. The first, the first class is everybody gets in front of the 
the, the class and they, they talk about their narrative and your narrative is really your life story. It's really your leadership story. It's the events, it's the moments, it's the people, it's the coaches that have influenced you and, 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 and allowed you to become the person you are. And when I went back and revisited my narrative, literally from the time I could remember being alive until my 50th birthday was when this all happened, basically, um, I realized this is not who I wanted to be. I didn't like myself. You know, I was okay as a father, as a husband, but I didn't like, I, I didn't like myself. And I realized that football wasn't who I was, uh, like I thought it was. Football was a platform. And it was a platform to serve a purpose. And that purpose was to create environments to allow teams and individuals within the team framework to become better versions of themselves. And so I got, I, I, I built a mission statement. I built a, a set of core values that I knew would keep me on the rails when things went, got tough and when we had success. And so I got fired up to get back in and I had never been a head coach. And up until that point, I didn't realize why, right? And then once I went back and did my narrative, I realized why I would have been the wrong guy. Um, and once I rebuilt my mission and my purpose and what success looked like, I wanted to, I wanted to do it. And the thing I had is I had competency. You know, I had competency to lead, but competency only gets you so far. And that's why I hadn't become a head coach. I was competent, but I wasn't vulnerable. I had too much ego, lacked self-awareness, didn't realize how people saw me differently than I thought they did. And I thought competency overcame everything. And you can't lead unless you're vulnerable. You can't lead. It's the number one. You can't, you can't lead unless you're self-aware, right? You can't lead unless you're empathetic. Can't. Can't lead without humility can't lead without respecting others and treating holding everybody in the highest regard and you can't really you can't really lead in this new world we live in this interconnected interdependent world without showing people that you truly love them you care for them you'll listen to them and they're valued i didn't know any of that but when i flipped the switch at 50 i knew exactly how i wanted to do it and because i had the competency and had i could control the quarterback which is the most important part of any team and I can control that room, I felt like I had a chance to control my, my, my life. And I was fortunate that because of an act of kindness, when I was uh, at, 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 with the Cleveland Browns 20 years earlier, uh, and Jim Pop was a young coach, uh, and he called me and said, you know, you, you did me a great favor. You haven't been a head coach. Would you like to be interested in the Montreal job? And I said, I had to go for two reasons. Number one is I didn't have to leave Raleigh. As you all know, we did our we did our, our coaches meetings in Raleigh, and we only had to go there for the season. So I got to spend six months six months with my kids, and they got to go to school in Raleigh until they graduated high school. So there's no such thing as a coincidence. And when you give, as I did to Jim Pop, and didn't expect anything in return, but to allow him to, you know, follow me around as I coordinated the Browns, it turned out to be one of the most important breaks in my life. And I had no idea that that would happen 20 years. That started 20 years earlier. I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it to you anyway. 
back-to-back great cup champions, which again, for the NFL fans out there that may not know CFL football, the great cup is the ultimate game. It's the Canadian football league's version of the super bowl. Um, and also a tremendous amount of life lessons that I know I learned from you during our year together. And I know that our players learn from you. Things as simple as when you leave your hotel room, if you've got some spare change or loose dollars or whatever, leave it for the lady who cleans the rooms, right? I watched you organize the players to create a fund to tip the people in the cafeteria at Bishop's University where we had training camp that year before we left to go into our season. Which of those two things gave you the greatest sense of accomplishment or pleased you the most? Whether it's, I don't want to say pride because I think that's that's a funny word for that. Well, I, I think it's, I think it's, um, you know, I think they're both the same thing, basically. They're being empathetic of others. Uh, I, th- I think what I, the one thing I tried to do in literally in every meeting, Jeff, was to show how everything, everybody mattered and everything we did was interconnected. I mean, if, if we went, if we went into our rooms and they were filthy when we got to the hotel, you know, we're usually there two days, they didn't clean up after us. Um, you know, we would be, we would be focusing on something that had everything to do with winning and nothing to do with winning, you know, and it was the same way. I mean, the the food was great at Bishop's, the place was clean. So if those things are taken care of, we can focus on what's important to winning football games. But I felt like every, every meeting was designed to show the interconnectivity and interdependency of everybody who's associated with the program is connected. That was the most fun, actually, whether it was football-wise or personal-wise, um, and respecting those people and holding them in the highest regard. I, I think that, you know, again, as, as I look at, and certainly I, I learned a ton of football from you, both technical football and, you know, how to practice and, you know, all of those things. But those things, I think, more than anything were the takeaways. And I, I remember saying this to you uh, on our last day together, that I will carry the good things with me forever. And there were a ton, a ton of good things. Now, you go to an, a place, and I've only been on the fringes of it. Certainly, you, you, you were right up to your neck in it. Uh, the National Football League, Mark, it's that is a that is a shark's pit, if you will, of all of those negative things that you talk about, selfishness, ego, you know, all of those things. You went back into that environment. Here's my here, this is what I I had hoped that you would that you would be able to take that empathetic, interconnected approach and make it work in that environment that tries in every way to separate people what was that like going back to the league then well when I got the Chicago job um, I didn't know anybody in the organization I didn't know the general manager 
it wasn't done like it is today where everybody's tied together general you know the, the agents run everything I mean I just was focused on being the best head coach in Montreal I could be um and when I went in to meet it was meet Phil Emery the general manager you know he had just fired Lovey Smith who had won 10 games the, the year before with players that had been with him for seven eight nine years um that was tough um you know, I, I've, I always, I hold myself accountable for not getting to year three for a number of different reasons. But what I can share is that um, number one is when you're building culture, the head coach is the culture and the values of the head coach are the culture. And my values were a little bit different. Not that Lovey's a great coach and, but my values were different. The way I did it was a little bit different. and. For the newer players, they were all in. For the decorated veterans, they didn't understand. Um, and I wasn't aligned. There has to be an alignment between ownership, uh, the general manager, and the head coach. And there wasn't the alignment that there needed to be. There was between Phil Emery and I, but the owners didn't understand, quite right. frankly. Right. And the other aspect of it was, in the first year, we played great offense, but we had a quarterback problem. You know, and when you pay the quarterback and you don't have defense, that's a problem. And so there wasn't an alignment on how to handle that. So as I look back, a lot of, you know, I, I could say, you know, Pete Carroll got a second chance. Tom Coughlin got a second chance. Bill Belichick got a second chance. Um, I haven't gotten that opportunity. I did going back to Toronto. We won a championship. I was really proud of that. Um, but at the end of the day, there were some mistakes made that I could have overcome, and I only have myself to blame. I could have done a better job. Um, at, the end of the, at the end of the day, um, we probably needed one more year, you know, and I think that the owners just did not understand culturally what we were trying to do. Right. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pump your book a little bit right here, because I think it's outstanding, and I read it. You actually gave me a copy one time when we were in Raleigh and I read it. I took it back to Hawaii and I read it. I think it's fantastic. It's called Perseverance, Life Lessons on Leadership and Teamwork by Mark Tressman. And I would highly recommend it to anybody, not just to anybody coaching out there, but anybody out there. It's a, uh, it's a really, really extremely well done book. And, uh, you know, um, I just think that, that, obviously you're giving an awful lot to those to those law students at the university of miami now but but that book i think is one that i would recommend that everybody take a look at and and listen to what mark mark says in 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 that book i want to switch gears now and go to the quarterback position the as you described it the most important position in football i don't think there's any question about that now and let's be Dr. Frankenstein here in the lab. We're going to put one together from, from the ground up, all right? And I, like I said, Mark, you've had so many great quarterbacks. And what are the physical traits that, to you, that guy needs to possess? Oh, um, well, that's, you know, that's, <laughs> there, there's a lot, there's a lot there. <laughs> there's really a lot there. I mean, you know, when I look at quarterbacks, um, I'll just kind of break it down for you. Um, they have to be accurate, Jeff. 
they have to be inherently accurate. It's tough. You can't play the game unless you're accurate. And there's really two kinds of accuracy. I break it down. You can throw the ball with great location. You can get the ball to the receiver, but then accuracy is not is 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 like a pitcher throwing the ball on the blade of, on the black of the plate. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Allowing the receiver to ma get maximum rack. You know, run after catch. So accuracy is important. Uh, you know, high end arm talent is important, um, but it's not it's not a prerequisite, but it certainly helps. Um, I call it functional intelligence. It's, uh, it's pro it is processing, it's managing chaos. Um, and, and, uh, you know, those are the big ones, you know, uh, real, really the big ones. I, I, I feel this way overall, like if I was explaining it to a layman, I would just say the quarterback's got to be able to drop back in the last two minutes and throw the football, not run around, but drop back and throw the ball in the last two minutes because these games are all won in the last two minutes of the game or last three minutes of the game as we know in Canada, right? So if a quarterback can't drop back and play the game from a drop back position at the end of the game, I don't think he can, he can, he can, he can win for you. That's number one. Um, he's got to understand that protecting the ball is the most important thing a quarterback does. And they protect the ball on the snap. They protect the ball on the way to the running back. They protect the ball in the framework of the pocket. Uh, they protect the ball locating the throw and they protect the ball outside the pocket. And that's what quarterback coaches do. They, they, they practice fundamentals uh, in and out of the, uh, the, the meeting room to do that. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. I think in factors, big uh, character is huge. Um, selflessness is critically important. Humility is great. I mean, you know, just think, what are they, what are, what are the great qualities of leaders? Self-awareness, humility, honesty, integrity, vulnerability. And I think you're seeing that more and more with the great athletes. They're more, they're more accepting of being vulnerable. You know, it's really interesting. You, you, as you were talking, it, it hit me, um, I've had an opportunity to get to know Ryan Leaf. He and I have done some work weeks. He was in London for a month with us and really had some great conversations, discussions uh -huh. with him. Yeah. And, and, and he, he bears that title of, or that mantle of the greatest bust of all time and all that. And when I talk to Ryan, it's incredible, Mark, how he mentioned those very things. He had all the physical tools. He was big. He was strong. He had all the arm, had had success at Washington State, took him to a Rose Bowl, something that's unusual at Washington State, certainly. But he said, I was my own worst enemy. My ego was too big. I wouldn't listen to any, I, you know, I had all the answers. And sure. I, I think, I, I wonder, as this process that we just went through, where we watched guys be drafted, how important those, if you call them intangibles are, those things that you can't yeah. put, yeah. put a stopwatch on or a piece, you know, a tape on. Or... Well, the most important relationship in all of football is a relationship between the coach and his quarterback. Whoever's in the quarterback room, though that relationship is the most important relationship in all of sports. Because if that room is dysfunctional, uh, chaos is going to be everywhere, right? So, um, you know, it's critically important that there is compatibility. It's a marriage. It's the most important marriage in sports. 
you know, and um, if there's, if there's, if it lacks vulnerability, if it lacks clarity and communication, if it lacks the ability or the inability not to be able to have conflict and not, and, 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 and if it lingers, if con the conflict lingers, there's going to be a problem, right? Uh, because ego is going to get in the way and there's going to be chaos everywhere and it's going to infiltrate every aspect of the organization. All right. Now, you used a term. I remember, I, I can remember getting blown away by this, right? When I was working for you, because I'd never heard it from June. I'd never heard it from Coach Vermeil. I'd never heard it from any of the great coaches I've been around. But you talked about your science, right? And really, your science is offensive football and quarterback play in particular. But over the time that you've been involved in high level coaching, right? All the way from you work from when you were with Tom Moore to, you know, to when you work with uh, Coach Harbaugh at Baltimore. How has the science of the game offensively and particularly quarterback position changed and evolved? Yeah, I think that um, some of the discipline has been lost because of the athleticism of the quarterbacks. So everybody wants Pat Mahomes, right? So like if you just take Andy Reid, Andy Reid would like Patrick Mahomes to be more disciplined, not the quarterback to be more disciplined. Three and a hitch, second hitch, reset, blah, 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 blah. You know, that type of, you know, coordinated drops with route depths. But he's found a, a medium to allow him to create, right? But before you can do that, before Steve Young could run around, he had to know that on 22Z and it was, you know, you know, three big, two quick, one hitch, either or hook or wide reset to the back, right? And then, go, and then do your thing. Somewhere between Steve Young and Pat Mahomes, it's loosened up. The one thing for sure is if your quarterback can extend plays, and use his legs on two or three third downs, particularly to get first downs, the coordinator isn't going to be a very good coordinator because he can't be right on those third down calls every time. Right. Particularly if they're more than third and three. Right. Right. So the, the there is an there is a sense of athleticism. Now there's the anomalies of, I mean, even Tom Brady could run a little bit. And if you watch, even if you watch the least athletic Philip Rivers and Bernie Kosar, they had nimble feet. They could find quiet area of the pocket. They could move around enough. And they were almost magical being able to get rid of the ball amidst a pass rush because they couldn't escape, right? So, but I think that's where the game has changed. And I think what's interesting, and it's kind of fun for, for you and I to talk about, there, there's, there's more CFL now than there ever was. Boy, now, Coach, you are exactly correct. I mean, you, you, the jet sweep stuff and the ghost screens and ghosting, you know, like the back was always the flare control for years. Now it's the wide receiver and ghost motion, getting in it, getting you know, the back will block. And if he gets out, great. But now we're going to kick out number three to a wide receiver who can run four, four, make something happen. So um, that's where some of the creativities come in. Um, but the game is essentially the same. It really is. And, uh, you know, we're going to be in the gun more, you know, it's almost exclusive gun football now yeah. um, for most teams. 
And, and that's, again, that that's college and CFL, right? You know, I talked to Trent Dofer once and he, he, he said this to me, he said, Jeff, you can't, you cannot understand the enormity of the position. He says, just not throwing a com- and completing the comeback on third down. It's all the other things that go into that position. Yeah, it's that, well, you know, there's just think about a quarterback's depth perception of, of knowing how to deliver a football when people are running at him, trying to kill him in complete chaos, you know, and knowing where the free rusher is. And that's why, that's why I love the position because it's exponential science. It never stops. It can come down to a six inch step by the left guard who stepped with his right foot instead of his left can, can create a, a major mess that ripples through the team. And again, that's why I love the position because, and love teaching it because, you know, that's why the linemen were always in our offensive meetings because they, they had to understand the enormity of a split that was too tight or a step that was too short or with the wrong foot or use the wrong hand placement. It all mattered. It's back to that thing you talked about. It's the interconnectedness of the it's whole. It's all interconnected, yeah. And it starts as soon as the game is over the week before, because if you win, you know, that winning can hide deficiencies until you look at the tape and realize we've got a lot of work to do. That It's never ending. Um, and and it, it goes up until game time. Coach, you're, you're working at the University of Miami Law School. You went back to Miami and you're teaching uh, yep. another generation coming out. Yep. Do you miss, do you, I know you work for uh, 3013 and, and do some, which you've done some really great stuff, particularly about the quarterbacks this year. Uh, do you miss coaching? Do you miss the game? Do you miss that part of it? Well, I've got, I've got a hell of a locker room with the students that I coach and we treat it literally as a locker room. Um, you know, I've, I've gone through with about 50 some students now in the three years and have really enjoyed building locker rooms with them because we treat it just like a locker room. It's, it's a team. Um, I love doing the 33rd team stuff and the writing. Um, I do a podcast on, uh, on Spotify called Leadership Game Plan. We've had some tremendous guests over the last three years. There's a lot of great leadership takeaways. And, you know, I've really treated it as my passion. Um, I really haven't had the coaching opportunities, you know, that, that there hasn't been any that have come up since I left uh, the XFL, which was a great gig being down in Tampa and allowed me to, to do everything I wanted to do from teaching at the law school to, you know, to coaching, to you know, learning how to play golf and doing all the, and having more family time. So, um, but there hasn't really been an opportunity for me to, to coach. So I haven't really had a chance to consider it. I want to throw this out to a guy named Spencer Lee, who has contacted me last week. And he said, I want to get to, I want to get to know other coaches around the world. Right. And we get it this, this little podcast has turned into now kind of a little international sensation I'm just going to tell you, you need to follow Mark on Twitter. And how can how can our viewers follow you, Mark? How can they learn more about what you're doing, what you what you're about, and you know some of those life leadership lessons that we talked about? Yeah, well, I think I think the pod, leadership game plan is really good. I mean, we've had I'm not going to go through the list of people we've had, but just a, a diverse, very inclusive. 
Um, a lot of great people, men and women, all different facets. Um, Nick Nurse, Raptors, did a great one. Thomas Friedman, New York Times, Amy Trask, Oakland Raiders, um, Rod Graves, Fritz Pollard. Um, we just did one with Christine Simmons, who was, you know, um, COO of the, the Grammys or uh, the Oscars, the Grammys. Um, I get them confused, forgive me, but there's a really, there's about Alex Rodriguez, Russell Wilson, a lot of different, really phenomenal uh, guests. And so I'm doing those three things. Um, I think my Twitter is at Coach Mark, at Coach Tressman. Yep. And uh, it's Leadership Game Plan on Spotify. And then, uh, um, you know, I, I post everything on my LinkedIn account too. All right. Now we got to, we obviously, we, we always uh, have a little question and answer session with, with our, with our viewers and, and uh, listeners from around the world. So Michael, can you come out and, and uh, give coach a couple questions for me? Yes, sir. First off, Richard Moorcroft from England has asked, I'd be interested to know uh, coach's view on the bears. Uh, it feels like they could be contenders for the division this year. If fields continues his development. Uh, do you agree with that coach? Well, I think they've loaded up, you know, they, they, they loaded up with a trade. I think they're doing a lot of good things. I think they've got a really good, really good staff. Um, you know, I think it comes down to Ken, Ken Fields win in the fourth quarter. It's really that simple. Can he drop back and make plays with his arm when it matters? And um, we haven't seen that yet. That's that thing you talked about. Exactly. All right. Exactly. Okay. I mean, it, it, he's got, he's a tremendous talent and I think he's shown great leadership. Okay, Richard, there you go. Thank you very much. Michael, what else you got? Got a question from David and Norwich saying, coach, you've worked with many quarterbacks over the years. Who's the most fun quarterback you've worked with? Oh, that I, I never do the most of anything. Because <laughs> as soon as I do the most, then there's 20 guys that get ticked off at me. So um, I, I tell you what, I, I don't know that I'm, I love coaching quarterbacks so much that I don't think there's anybody that I didn't have fun coaching and enjoy working with. And uh, every single one of them was dedicated, tremendous character, hardworking. Um, some I got the most out of others. I didn't, um, uh, but I loved every minute of it, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to with it with some of the guys that I've been blessed, as you well know, to coach, I'm not pinning myself down to one guy. <laughs> All right, Michael. Yeah, we've got one more from Sean in Liverpool. Coach, um, a, a lot of talk after the draft. Is there one team that you feel isn't being given enough love going into the season that people may that, that that you may think that may come out and prove people wrong? Um, you know, I think that's that's a really tough question. Um, I think the team that's really loaded up is Seattle with the, with the Russell Wilson trade, you know, because they're up there in the Northwest, you know, that they, they don't, they don't get a lot of as much, you know, publicity, but I think the trade really got them. They did a great job with their draft a year ago. And I think that what well, we really won't know for a couple of years um, where the draft goes, I think a lot of it's going to depend, you know, on how these quarterbacks sort themselves out. That's a tough question, but for some reason, I just think Seattle up there with, uh, you know, Gino having a great year and then all these draft picks, they, they got to be really good coming out of the box. Tress, I agree with you because, you know, Jackson Smith and Jigba, 
top rated receiver on a lot of guys boards they get him and then they also get Witherspoon the corner out of Illinois that's a that's a I thought a really really good corner so I thought Pete did really well in the draft and then you go down through the draft and I think you know bringing in a big back like Charbonneau because they want to run the ball pound the football I thought they did a great job of addressing an awful lot of things and you like you say they got some they got some draft collateral when they when they made that Wilson trade yeah, and then if you if you just draw a line all the way down to Miami, that's the real question mark. You hope Tua can come back, right? You know, he can't come back. That's that's really gonna that's gonna be a be be tough there without him at, at full strength. Coach, I tell you what, I could be I could do this all day. You got to come back and be with us again. And it is so like my heart's really happy right now. I got this has been a hell of a half hour, hasn't it, Jeff? <laughs> We're. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I, I I wish we didn't have to stop, but we got to stop. I can't I can't keep you anymore. I really really appreciate well, very nice. much you being so kind and and to give us this much of your time. Say hello to all the guys. Uh, give Tommy some love. Orlando, Milo, all the guys. You got a great great group of guys there, and um, excited to watch your team this year. All right, coach. And any time, man. And I hope when, if you ever get around these parts, you you look us I, up. You, you may see me sooner than you think. We'll talk you know to what? You. I, I remember, what was it, 19 you surprised me one day. You just walked in. I saw you on the sideline of practice. And I said, there's my guy. <laughs> well, keep up the great work. I know you're informing people all over the world, Jeff, and uh, nobody better to do it than you. You're awesome. All right, coach. Love you. Take care of yourself. Take care. Love you, too. Bye-bye.